This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to episode five of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. And at the end of it all, the disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holers. How's everyone today? Well, I just want to take issue with something you just said, that the disembodied voice pronounces a winner as if that was some objective (laughs) Solomonic (laughs) process, when in fact it makes Seth Blatter look like Solomon. Just just say it, let's get that in. I don't know. So there's been four episodes and it's cat and I to all, is it? I think something like that. But the Richard has already said to us that he doesn't, care and he doesn't mind he doesn't really like the competitiveness i don't care but i think there are i'm a kantian let justice be done though the heavens fall i think the listener will be hoping that you break your duck today yeah we won't be but they will be this happened to me on the wheel i got paid a lot more for that (laughs) (laughs) well let's just wait and see so hopefully you've done so much research now that there's no hope of you doing anything other than bursting with research i'm sweating (laughs) i can see all your notes there I don't do notes. It puts me off. It's all, it's all in there. Well, it's from, well, I used to write a sermon. That's true, And then yes. not look at it and then mm. preach it from memory or from something like memory. The transfiguration comes around every year, right? And after, you know, 15 years, you think, oh, I've got nothing more to say about the transfiguration. Sometimes people <laughs> come and surprise you. But if it's like that for you, if you're lecturing, for example, you just think, oh, long boats. Yeah, that's the same thing. I always find that if, you know, yeah. we all, we've all had books out, we had to go and talk about books. And I always stop the tour when I'm boring myself. Because yeah. if you're doing that to yourself, you have to pity the poor audience. Why did you go from Caroline, England to Plantagenet, England, France? For writing a book? Well, yeah. I just, I, I go on the story rather than the period. I like to do stories from the past, which have been semi-forgotten. And it's not like I'm stuck in the 17th century. You see, that's interesting. So you're not an academic historian who would dare put a toe outside oh, well, I get, there. Yes, so. I'm a narrative historian. So when I get reviewed by something serious, like the Times Literary Supplement, it's a bloodbath. Because <laughs> they think you're a dilettante or something. They think I'm a dilettante. In fact, that word has been used. My first book said, well, of course, he's just an impresario who's dabbling. Which I, I had to look up what impresario meant because I was only a narrative historian. <laughs> But it's a thing in the academy now. I had a friend staying this weekend who's a medieval historian. And I said, what's your period now? And it was practically 
tea time on April the 11th, <laughs> yeah. 1174. But do you remember Christopher Hibbert? Christopher yeah. Hibbert was one of the great narrative historians. And he wrote, what, 40, 50 books? And that covered absolutely everything. He was a storyteller who just happened yeah. to tell nonfiction. So would you say that you're a rabbit hole sort of historian? I think we're in a biggish rabbit hole right now. Yeah. What are we meant to be talking about? <laughs> not, not that. <laughs> That's so good to say. So we have actually got topics that we're meant to be oh, talking yes. about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drag just, us back just from the edge of the precipice. Yeah. Reminder, really. Are you first, Kurt? I think I am first well, this week. I, I think I can remember what your subject is. Yes, because it came up. I I think Last it's time. sauna, aka sauna. Yes, that is my topic this week. And I like that because I very recently went to a, an absolutely amazing sauna in Oslo, in the Oslo Fjord, when I went back for a visit. They came up with this idea of having floating saunas on the fjord. So it's like a little boat and you can either hire it and it can sort of it it can just go on a tour of the fjord or they're just sort of stationary and you've got this beautiful view of the fjord so you go in and then you pop out and you you jump in the fjord and then you you steering your own sauna (laughs) i wasn't you could do i suppose or someone doing it for you yeah so these ones i was there when it was parked but you can hire it and then you can go on a tour and it's just such a brilliant idea it's absolutely wonderful but do you unselfconsciously naked in the scandinavian way so not in these ones because they're right in the centre of Oslo. So no, like, even boat. even for Norway, that's probably a little bit much. This happened but. to me when I was in Stockholm. I went to a sauna. Someone had a sauna in their back garden. Yeah. And you want a sauna? Yeah, yeah, of course. And if you had any body embarrassment at all, it wouldn't have lasted very long. Yeah. But actually it was fine. It was a bit odd sitting next to I had the opposite. I didn't know the etiquette. My first hot tub in California and surprised the host by stripping off completely. <laughs> He looked absolutely appalled. Really? Yes. No. <laughs> but I just assumed this is California and I'm a Brit and this is probably what they do. They but it wasn't. They test you. Yeah, I failed the <laughs> test. See, I, I'm not, I think like lots of clergy because we have buttoned up lives. I'm one of nature's naturists. That would be my... Have you defense. been to a naturist camp? When I was asked to, I was asked to actually preside at the Eucharist as a naturist camp and I couldn't do it. And then after all, I thought, do they kneel for communion? I know. <laughs> But also the shopping. I've seen. I saw a documentary about a naturist place, and and they all go around. It, it's fine outside, but then yeah. they go to the supermarket, and it just looks a bit weird, doesn't it? With a, a basket on one arm and standing well, for a very short time in front of the children, if you're kneeling at the rail, and the vicar's coming along. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, that's the same. I mean? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, maybe <laughs> that's just yeah. your Scandinavian. You have none of this, don't you? Yeah. Well, I think with the soreness and, and things, and 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 even just. When we were little at school and you'd have sort of communal showers, and it was just not a big deal at all. And I think if you grow up with that and yeah. it's never a big deal, then it's it's just We had a Norwegian normal. boy at my school who would just stride around with nothing on at an age when boys are unusually self-conscious. Yeah. Mind you, he had nothing to be self-conscious about. And I just envied it so much. He was so unembarrassed. Yeah, you know? I think if that's as a society, if you just think that that's absolutely normal then that's the thing so going back to the actual subject <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> sorry sorry to do that but what age is it allowed to have your first sauna and is your first sauna a dramatic moment in a family's life no not at all I, I don't think i mean i think it's not necessarily that health for young children between them for very long i suppose but i mean we i i just remember going to in norway it was mainly the public swimming pools that you'd go to and they had saunas in them so we would just go in there when we were small and there was never it wasn't really a big deal it's just one of those things that you do and they're would not it be really before or after a swim or be entirely separate after usually yeah 
Yeah. You go for a swim first and then you go yes, into the, the And would sauna. it be a cold swim first or a normal temperature? Well, this is, I mean, this dull, normal swim. Mm. But yeah, I mean, so, so the, the sort of typical process would be to, to be in the sauna and then have a cold dip or roll in the snow or whatever you do. So you get the contrast between the cold and, and the heat, which is obviously the sort of thing that's very good for your system and for your, for your skin and everything. But just to sort of go back to some of those facts about them. And actually, the, the word, so you, we said sauna earlier, which is the correct Finnish pronunciation. And apparently, this is the only Finnish word in the English dictionary. Is sauna. Apparently. Really? Mind you, the Finnish language is unlikely to lend much of its riches to... <laughs> yeah. It's a very... Was it, it's connected to Hungarian or yeah, something. You know, you agree, yeah, yeah. In a very faint relationship, something to Korean. To Korean, yeah, very faint, and it's argued, but there is a the Finno-Ugric group in a total relationship to Korean. Some weird migratory mm. event in the past, I guess. Didn't know that. Sorry, <laughs> that's fine. We're just doing the the rabbit <laughs> yeah, hole well, thing. I discovered someone probably in, in Finland actually. Well, I love them. So we kind of associate them mainly with Finland now, I suppose. And I guess the modern saunas or saunas are very much sort of Finnish and also other Baltic countries like Estonia and Latvia, parts of Russia as well. They're very traditional. But I mean, they go back, we don't actually know when the first and the oldest ones are. In Finland, I think the first written descriptions of the sauna is from uh, 1112 AD. So not that old, but obviously the sauna type things go back to Romans obviously had uh, baths, so they had several different, the caldarium is the, the hot steam room, Yeah, but they did some, not all Roman bathhouses, but some had uh, a dry heat. So the sauna is a dry heat, really. So there's uh, something called a laconium, which is a Roman dry steam room. So you'd go from the tepidarium, which is the oh, warm yes. room, Gosh. to the caldarium, which is the hot steamy room, and then possibly to the laconium, which is the dry heat. This will be, I don't know if you, Charles, I expect so, but for English schoolboys of yeah, a certain age, it all comes back. Everyday life in ancient Rome. Exactly, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so exciting. I haven't heard tepidarium since then. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. The drawings yes. made a big impression on me as a growing boy, <laughs> especially in the strigil room. Oh, yes. <laughs> so... Obviously, that's a sort of going back 2,000 years. They probably go back much older. We don't have much What about the Ottoman Haman and all that? that yeah, the Turkish that? bath. Yes. It's the same sort of thing coming from that same tradition. I have a theory. Yeah. I think that the Nordic sauna might have had a different origin, which is you're living in the winter, it's freezing cold outside, and you come in to a blazing fire, and that yeah. contrast between a freezing moment straight into the heat creates a sort of thing. Do you think that's right? Yeah, it's possible. So it seems like some of the earliest Finnish saunas are something that's more like I call a smoke sauna. So it's, it's really interesting. So you have the whole room or the whole building. Originally, they were in uh, pits, sort of little pit buildings. But you'd heat a, a pile of rocks and build a very large wooden fire that would burn for six to eight hours mm. without a chimney or anything like that. So the whole room just is filled with smoke. Could people sit in there? No, they don't. They don't. So that's the first stage. And then you open a little vent type thing and you let all the smoke out. But then the room is so, so hot and the whole room is blackened. And Gosh, so that's... I mean, all the health benefits are gone, haven't they? I mean, <laughs> when do people realise this had health benefits? Or is that just an add-on recently? No, I mean, they must have been very, very early. I mean, I think, I'm sure that the realized and actually koreans have saunas as well yeah so there's so I'm, I'm sure i'm not pronouncing this correctly but their traditional korean sauna is called the hanjungmak and there's a sort of dome structure of stone and that goes back 
definitely at least to the 15th century. There's records of it then. And that was described in the descriptions of it from that time. They're talking about the health benefits. And Buddhist monks would have these clinics in these saunas to sort of treat sick people. So it's therapeutic. Yeah, so not, not just a sort of enjoyable thing. So I think that must go back at... And then you've got things like sweat lodges and there's lots of different cultures, Native American, yeah. but they can have spiritual reasons as well. So not it's not just the sort of physical health bit, Here's but spiritual. Question. If you didn't know about saunas and you walked into one, you'd get out of it straight away. Yeah. That's you? true. It's, yeah. right. it, it's not you? a good thing. It yeah. does feel wrong. I mean, you have to, when it's, you it's first go in, it does feel like you, you want to just go and you don't. Yes. It, yeah. It feels but I, I, I read recently that it's incredibly beneficial to your sort of cardiovascular system. And on average, you know, if people had regular saunas, it might add three years to your life. Yeah, it's hugely. So I was like doing some of the research, I was looking up the studies and there's so many of them going through all the different parts of your body and your immune system. I don't understand. Is it because it dilates your blood vessels? Or some stuff moves around. I don't know. How does it work? Sweating for a start is very good for your system, but I don't know the mechanics beyond that. Circulation as well really, really benefits, and that's obviously yes. good for everything. Yes. Oh, I love a sauna. Yeah. We, need to take we should do the next trip. one from a sauna. <laughs> we could do. <laughs> when I was last in Lapland, I did the thing where someone cut a hole in the ice in the lake, ah. and we did sauna. And then through the hole of the ice into the lake. See, that I don't understand. Because, you know, even when there's a heat wave, you hear about people jumping in and dying of shock. But thermal shock. I mean, how do you not get thermal shock from that? You get to expect it. Oh, I see. So I think so it's not a shock. Yeah, I mean, it is a shock. But it's like people yeah. do cold water swimming. They don't, yeah. it doesn't, they don't get thermal shock, mm. I don't think. Very strange. When I did this recently, it was, the water was about eight degrees or something like that. And so you go from this hot to the... But it doesn't feel like, like that degrees, because you've got... Yeah. It's Do you so not hot. feel it because you're in shock or, or, or how <laughs> does it go? I think it's because you've, you've come from this really, really other extreme. Mm. I think your body's just really confused that you yes. can just yes, go no, with it or something. I don't know. Give you a little colourful anecdote that the last time I did sauna in Finland, traditional thought it was with Christopher Biggins. Just had a mental image of that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. So there was one interesting little fact that came up when talking about, obviously I'm always interested in the history and, and what we can find out, trying to work out what the earliest ones were. And there was one theory that was put forward that some of the circles and hinges might have had something to do with soreness. And I, oh. Now, I don't believe in this. I don't think it's quite right. But there was a wood hench, so one that was found just a few years ago in East Yorkshire, which was a wooden circle, so a circle of post holes, basically, and uh, dates about 4,000 years old. But it had lots of stones, burnt stones in the middle and also oh, by the outside. So yes. one sort of suggestion was that this was some sort of theme. The other suggestion was that it was a sort of ritual cremation type site, which I think is Maybe more likely, but who knows? It's an interesting one. I just in my mind, I just associate saunas with Scandinavia. Yeah, <laughs> but there's no particular reason why it should be Scandinavia or. Well, no, because mm. obviously you've got the history in you know Roman times, yeah. and I think mm. this is it is mm. probably. But it's so un-English, isn't it? If I can put it that way. Well, uh, taking your clothes off. Well, taking your clothes off, yes, and also heat. <laughs> Do you know? What <laughs> they're both strange. Being concepts. hot and naked is just yes. not a very English thing. Very it's the most un-English thing. I love those stories about people going to stay with friends in Scandinavia and finding they're sitting next to their granny with nothing on. And stuff. <laughs> well, that's completely, I mean, talking to a friend recently who's, who works a lot in Finland and 
it was an academic conference and they would all sort of have their meetings and their talks and everything during the day and then they'd all just get in the sauna completely naked and sit and continue the conversation and then go back. There's a gym at the BBC. When I used to go to the gym, because the men showers afterwards, and there was something a bit odd about finding yourself in the shower next to the controller of Radio 1. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It was just like... It kind is of... strange. I remember going on a trip to Japan and this very nice man who was showing me around came to see me. I went to, into a hot bath, which is their equivalent, you know, very, very hot natural bath. And I was lying there naked and he popped around naked to ask what time we should be leaving. And it was, I was sitting and he was standing. It was all very awkward, is all I can say, having a chat with this chap. Where does that come from? Why is that such a... And it was absolutely fine. And then as soon as he had his clothes back on, I had mine back on, it was back to the sort of... Let uh, us never speak of this again. (laughs) (laughs) Except on a big podcast in the world. If he's listening, I'd be amazed. (laughs) You live in two cultures, Kat. What do you think? It's just a cultural thing. It's just what you've grown up with. And if, if this is what you've grown up with when you're little, if you thought you see your parents, your grandparents, you know, I remember my grandparents both walking around our house naked up into their 70s, 80s when I was little. And that was not a strange thing at all. And I think if you, if that's always what's normal, then that's just I'm what just you're curious used to. why the British... I'm English curious about that too. Oh, <laughs> embarrassed, also sort of nervous, about, anxious about it. Mm. Odd, isn't it? It is. I mean, French, not Germans, not obviously Scandinavians, not. I mean, we, we really are alone on that one, aren't we? There's something level about being naked together, isn't there? Maybe we, you know, maybe we like a hierarchy. I don't know. It might be. Maybe that's why showering next to the controller of Radio One is a bit weird. So. <laughs> I. I'm a big fan of the sauna, so I might try and get. But where one do you get one in, say, you're in Britain or in London? It's not actually that many. I mean, you'd have to go health clubs and things or unless you have gay. one at home. Mm. Or be gay. So, yes, there's a whole history of, the of gay sauna. Gay thing. saunas, Massive isn't there? Thing, yeah. yeah. Is that still a thing? Because I know there's some historical ones. No, I think the gay saunas became a thing because of the clandestine nature of gay life. So they yeah. needed to have a sort of excuse to, to get together and get naked. So that's why that happened, I think. And as the opportunities to get together naked with people of the same sex have multiplied, maybe. I don't actually know. There used to be a famous one in London called Stallions. I always wondered if there was like a passing Norwegian pastor. Perhaps I thought, oh, I fancy a sort of stuff. And he went to Stallions and found, gosh, I'm much Quite friendlier so- than I thought. <laughs> I thought they were embarrassed about nudity. <laughs> Amazing. So on that note, <laughs> yeah. um, we're going to move on, I think, to the next topic. Oh, actually, I have to give you my best Yes, best story. Yeah. Just to start the numbers, because you're sort of thinking, where, where can we get one in this country? Well, if you're in Finland, they have an estimated... Three million saunas for a population of 5.5 million. Goodness. That's where you need to go. Yeah. Oh, move to Finland. Come on. I think so. I think we do. Well, let's do do an episode from uh, somewhere. (laughs) I loved Finland. It's lovely. I've been to Finland twice. Once by train. I went, watched a Peter Ustinov thing on Leningrad. Oh, and you got that train? And I got the train train. from Helsinki to Leningrad. Lovely, isn't it? All through Karelia. So beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. Right, so that was me. And Charles, you're up next today. So you're going to be talking about something that we, because we're all writers, Mm -hmm. we're quite Mm -hmm. used to these things, but we don't really know the history of them. So we're hoping that you could tell us a little bit about literary festivals. Yes, well, I've been on both sides of literary festivals. I've spoken, I, I worked out, I've spoken at about 60 different locations around the world including Jaipur in India, which I know you spoke at, Kat, as well. And they are quite a recent phenomenon. They're mainly a British invention, although there have been overseas equivalents. The very first one I could find was in the early 20s in Florence, and then there was one in Spain in the 20s as well. 
But what we in Britain associate as literary festivals really kicked off just after the war with Cheltenham. There was a sort of cultural festival in Cheltenham in 1945. And then the first, what we would recognise as proper literary festival in 49. And then they've sort of proliferated to such an extent that there are now 350 literary festivals in Britain. And you think, wow, that's one nearly every day. Well, it's more than that because there aren't any in that I can find in August or December. So you're dealing with an enormous amount. And it reminds me of a rather fantastic cartoon in The Times of two shipwrecked mariners scrambling onto a desert island. And one turns to the other and goes, right, first things first, we'd better found a literary festival. Because <laughs> <laughs> pretty much every big town and even little villages have their literary festival now. And they are extraordinary phenomena. On the one hand, I can see their massive appeal because you get household names or a particular author to come along and talk about something maybe you've been studying in your book club or reading for yourself. And I found, I used to run a literary festival. Uh, It was so interesting what people will go to be seen at. I mean the audience, not the speaker. So we had one for about 10 or 15 years at my house in North Hans. And we worked out it didn't really matter. Somebody could be mega famous. But unless they were famous through the BBC, Radio 4, The Telegraph, sort of really middle class bastions, they wouldn't get an audience. So Kay Burley came one time from Sky News and we couldn't get an audience because the very middle-class, middle-aged crowd that we had didn't want to be seen to have satellite television. Very strange, nuanced snobberies. And then the other people who can't attract an audience are famous novelists, because I don't think novelists have that connection with their readers. They used to have. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking in the 80s, Martin Amis, Ian McEwan, Julian Barnes, for example, were... Mm spoken about as a sort of the British Saul Bellow, weren't they? Well, yeah, but we had Julian Barnes. We couldn't, I mean, 60 people turn up. But do you think that's because no one reads literary fiction anymore or because it's just not a thing anymore? I think it's not a thing. Or is is it just that they don't go to festivals as such that people who read certain types of books don't necessarily like the live events because you don't necessarily want to talk to the author because you wouldn't enjoy the book. I think that's part of it. So I I think there's no, in that a a fiction author is, is dealing in ideas and and a storyline that is fantastical what do you want to hear from them mm. people get very bored if they go to a, a literary event and just hear the author reading out chunks of his book unless it's a brand new book and you feel you're getting some sort of exclusive because you can read at home it's seem, a way of connecting with celebrities for a mm, very very reasonable price selling out at your festival job you <laughs> did. what you're trying to say here <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, hang on, but you're that... a local talent too if i may say so but i think you're right and it's interesting i think if you're an author now if you're not a performer too you're just mm. big disadvantage, Huge disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. definitely don't you find if you've feel your event has gone well at a literary festival the book sales correspond to that too one of the very first i went to was a literary lunch which was again a festival up north somewhere and a very famous newscaster was giving this brilliant brilliant speech and got carried away we're in a very conservative part of yorkshire and he used a a really forbidden word as a a swear word and he lost the audience Mm -hmm. and lost the sales they were absolutely embarrassed and furious and it was just like that and again with a very accomplished historian uh, when it came to the answer part of the the sort of q a part this woman asked a question and i think this famous historian was just 
shy and awkward. But he said to this woman, I think that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. And again, the room went cold on him. Well, you have to be careful preaching a sermon. You can lose a congregation. Yes. Yes. It's sort of the same sort of thing. That's a performance too, isn't it? Also, there was a moment I remember at a literary festival listening to Sebastian Folks talking about birdsong. And it was so beautiful. And he's such a charming man. And there was an A-level student in the audience. And at the end of this brilliant hour, she said, why is it called birdsong? And he went, oh, oh my God, and looked so depressed because he just explained for an hour about this his masterpiece. And it is, it is quite daunting when people don't listen to what you've just said. Try preaching some sermons because it's so <laughs> interesting when people at the end would come up and say, I love what you said. When you say what bit, they go that bit. And then you realise that they've heard exactly the opposite of what you... I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice. Charles mentioned Cheltenham in 1949. Do you know the job of the man that created the first literary festival. Do you know what he did in Cheltenham? No. He was the civic entertainments manager. Mm. Well, what a extraordinary foresight. No longer there. Absolutely. And he created the first festival. He presented some ideas to the Borough's Entertainments Committee in 1944. And five years later, in conjunction with an author, local author, who served as the first director, and the poet Cecil Day-Lewis turned up at the very first festival who taught locally at Cheltenham College, and read a selection of contemporary verse. Ralph Richardson, the actor who was born in Cheltenham, then launched the festival and away we go. Away we go. Away we go. There is also, it's one of those things that fills the gap left by the sort of collapse of the things like bonfire night or going to church. Literary festivals have become a sort of middle class Christmas or a middle-class Glastonbury, haven't they? Well, they have. And in fact, Hay is known as the Glastonbury. Or actually, I think Clinton, when he was invited to Hay, called it the Woodstock of literary festivals. There's a man called um, Richard Booth who got the Hay on Wye festival going. And he wanted to bring in rural tourism. Now, one in 20 visitors to Wales go to Hay really? uh, because of its profile. He's succeeded in, in making it a destination on the back of books. And that's not a bad thing. And I think, you know, there are, there are various new festivals now. There's a free literary festival, which is to counter the sort of middle class affluent yeah. aspect of it. Can I ask you a question? Do they make money? Well, hay has a turnover of nine or 10 million a year, but I don't know how much it makes. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you from mine, no, you lose money. It doesn't wash its face. Doesn't, no, it it very much lost money. I mean, I've spoken a few times at Tame off the M40, and they have this lovely little sort of theatre with 200 people, which will be filled every time. The killer for literary festivals is the expense of marquees and loos Mm. and all of that. That's the expensive. Yeah. I made the mistake when I had a literary festival. We went from two rooms with 160 people in each to a tent for 450. Well, you're never going to get that back. Because one of the problems for authors in literary festivals is that it's a hell of a commitment to go to the other side of the country, to go and speak for an hour, and in the old days, not get paid. Now now there is a, an expected minimum wage of, what is it, Kat? It's not a lot, actually, for what you're doing. So no, you, 150, 200 quid so, or something, something like but that. It establishes an important principle, doesn't it? Which is, it is a principle, but also if you think of your time, and I've had some of these where I've had to travel for one or two or three days, and you're actually, you might be signing 30 books. Yeah. So if you sell well, 30 books into and the you mechanics. get, you know. So people say, why on earth? How do these things work? Because you've got somebody committing a day, the publishers are having to pay the expenses and maybe a hotel included. How does it work? Well, I looked at it. Claire Balding... She's a very busy lady. She just does three or four for each book. But they bombshell an area. And then they looked at the ripple effect of the sales. So when 
an author goes and sells 40 books at the end of an hour's talking. That sounds like a complete waste of money for everyone. But there'll be other people in the audience who think about it and then mm-hmm. buy on Amazon, etc. The local Waterstones will have stocked up with your books to furnish the audience and they'll keep extra stock which you sign at the end. But I must say, anyone who's been a guest at a literary festival will know that this is your standard procedure. So you arrive... And the organiser is usually somebody quite bossy with a clipboard who's absolutely ecstatic to see you, not because they think your book's any good, not because they like you, but because (laughs) there's not the agony of an empty slot. You then speak for an hour, you sign their stock of book, and then this person goes from having been absolutely joyous to slightly forbidding, and then they say to you, would you like a cup of tea before you go, mm. pointing at the door? So it can be a very joyless experience. I was just going to say, just to counter that, though, there is a really nice thing about it, which I think is is when somebody comes up to you afterwards and you have this queue of people and they just tell you what your book oh, it's meant lovely. to them. And it is the nicest thing because you've sat there for years. I'm pining over my next one now and thinking, well, what a nightmare it is to do it. But I should for somebody to sort of come and share exactly what that book meant to them, I think, is just the nice thing. And you can't, I mean, obviously there's not a lot of money. It's not profitable. It's not, no, no, but it no, is a like... really personal connection. I think for some people, that's the only connection they can get to yeah. authors, I think. So I, the other thing I love about literary festivals is the sort of pecking order of authors. Now, sometimes it's obvious. So if you've got a really famous author, you know. But it's when they have to make judgments about relatively equally matched authors and where you find yourself in their pantheon is an interesting yes. one. Yes, and it? Hay is very bad at that, if I may say so, because they have a special author's room and then a general author's room. Oh, green oh room. they've got different. Yeah. Velvet row. I had the worst. So I went to Hay, well, 17 years or something ago, and I hadn't looked at the scorecard as to, you know, what I was doing. And I was up against Jane Fonda. Oh well, there God. was me and some tumbleweed in my marquee, <laughs> whereas she had 1,200 people in hers. My first ever book signing was at Cheltenham, which is the biggest of literary festivals. So I did my thing and it was fine, not, you know, did respectably. And they said, we're signing at the end. I said, yeah, and there are these two tables next to each other. And I said, which one? They said, that one. I said, who's the other one for? It was just another Orion author. And I'm all right. Who is it? They went, I said, no, who is it? They went, no, who is it? <laughs> Judy Dench. Her queue went to the M5. I had no one. A friend of mine is called Giles Andre, who no one has heard of, but he's Purple Ronnie and a various other cartoon. And he went to a children's literary festival, him and Anthony Horowitz. Oh, gosh. And they took their tables, and there was a queue around the block for Anthony Horowitz. And the only person who spoke to Giles during his entire book signing was Anthony Horovitz saying, sorry, can I borrow your pen? Because mine's run out. (laughs) That was the only person. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret Atwood, who actually has a, a thing called a signing pen, so she can talk to a festival from anywhere in the world and has some weird device where she can sign her books and it comes out the other end. But anyway, she has a rather dim view of the value of a literary festival and she says wanting to meet an author at a literary festival because you like their work is like wanting to meet a duck because you like pate yeah. and it is a sort of very convoluted way of of having a literary connection and i think it's a way a very inexpensive way comparatively of meeting somebody quite well known but it's also isn't it of getting your book signed mm. and a signed book has a cachet and indeed a value doesn't it? in spite of the endless efforts of publishers to make you sign all of them, you know. Yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? Why does a signed book still... I was in a second-hand bookshop, but then I found a very slim copy of Sonnets by Lord Alfred Douglas, 
signed and dedicated by Lord Alfred. Oh Douglas. my goodness! And it was felt like such a win to find. Yes, this thing. it's a feeling that they've mm. spent time and part of their spirit on that page I and personalised something that was that's a general offering. I think the other interesting thing is you get to hang out with other authors, and that's yeah. a yeah. fairly recent phenomenon because authors tend to well, if you fly go to lonely the Adelaide train. Book Festival you have to get over your jet lag. Uh, you get sent into the bush with all the other authors to go and decompress and meet each other. Really? Yeah, apparently it's a good one to do. It's a long way. You know, I suppose you could do it with I'm a celebrity at the same time. <laughs> two for the price of one. Now, did you have a particularly interesting fact, Charles? Yes, I really enjoyed. So I, I mentioned Richard Booth, who founded the Hay Festival. And on the 1st of April, rather important, uh, 1977, he proclaimed Hay an independent kingdom and was crowned king and ruler of the new state, and he named his horse Prime Minister. Really? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Brilliant. So... There's no interesting thing about oh, hay. I've got another interesting about hay. you got another one. I think it's the spa is in England and the co-op's in Wales. Oh. It's something like that. So I think the, the, it's like the, the Tonga oh, border runs. Tuesday on the left and Wednesday on yeah, the right in Tonga. Yeah. Well, we had that, didn't we, mm. in time zone? Mm. Excellent. That leaves us with your topic Yes, now. Richard, what is your so, topic? I think we gave you received pronunciation. We That's did. right. RP. Standard English, some people call it. Oxford English, some people call it. Perhaps best known now as BBC English. Mm. Although how long that will hold <laughs> is an open question because there's nothing fixed about this idea of standard English. Basically, people think that there's a certain way of speaking which you would associate with the BBC. And it would be perhaps associated with a kind of middle-class home counties kind of accent. There are different kinds of RP, in fact. There's that sort of mainstream RP. There's posh RP, which would be the, the language of aristocracy, for example, or perhaps Oxbridge sort of English. What about Mr Chumley Warner? Harry well, Enfield's I Mr mean, Chumley Warner. Well, that's interesting. I think that would probably... I mean, it, it, it dates it. I mean, it's interesting. We were talking about The Crown a while ago, and if you listen to how actors portraying the royal family yes. speak when they're in the 1950s, it's very different from how they speak when they're in the... 2000s, right? The 1990s. And no accent perhaps shifted more noticeably in our lifetimes than the Queen's. If you hear her when she was a princess, the way she spoke then to how she spoke as an older woman, very, very different. But at the centre of it, there's this notion that there is a standard form of English. Interestingly, it's quite a recent phenomenon. People argue about when it actually happened. And in terms of leaving a record, it's about the 1890s. But the public school system had an awful lot to do with it. Before the public school system, aristocrats spoke with regional accents. So if you were a Percy of Northumberland, or indeed a Spencer of Northamptonshire, you spoke with a regional accent. And it was only really when the public school system got going in the 19th century that people started speaking in one voice, and that voice was... Oxford English, I guess. Mm. Although the, I can think of an exception, because I, I, the late Duke of Westminster, he was brought up in Ireland and was mercilessly teased at boarding school for having an Irish accent. It's one of the things that put him off private education and boarding schools. Well, that's very interesting because Scottish aristocrats, I mean, the Scottish aristocrats who went to, I don't know, Eton and Oxford, then they would speak in a voice which would sound indistinguishable. From, but there are Scottish aristocrats who went to, say, Fetters and St Andrews and do retain a Scottish accent and, and you can still hear that but the public school system did sort of standardize it and why would you do that well partly i think there was a as 
Britain imperially expanded Horizon's influence and power, then it needed to have a sort of officer class. You think of the British Empire at its greatest extent was vast, huge, huge, huge swathes of land all over the surface of the earth maintained by a very relatively small number of people. So they kind of standardised those people. So George Orwell left Eton and at the age of 20 was in charge of 200,000 people around Burma. Yeah. Rory Stewart, in her own time, left Eton and went to the Foreign Office before very long, was a governor in Afghanistan. So, you know, that's not an entirely faded notion. But if you're going to standardise that, well, not only do you need rules and regulations, but you need to have look the same and sound the same, uniform patterns of speech. It really got going in the form we know today, though, a hundred years ago. What happened a hundred years ago in 1922? The BBC. The BBC. Ah. And Lord Reith, who was the first director general of the BBC, managing director, was determined that BBC output should sound the same. So standard English, RP English, Oxford English, BBC English. And the idea was not that the BBC, as some of its critics would say, should sound like a middle-class voice claiming authority over other kinds of accent. It was because it should be intelligible to everyone. So Lord Ruth's idea, which was cover the entire nation, indeed the empire, and should speak in one voice again so it might be clear and so it might be understood. That was, I think, an effort at accessibility. But in our own time, that's really reversed. And I think people think the idea of everyone speaking in the same, I'm using inverted commas, posh voice mm. doesn't make it inclusive, but exclusive. Mm. And so you will now hear on the BBC continuity announcers in particular, which until very recently were absolute paragons of received pronunciation. You're hearing many more, not just regional accents, but accents from around the world. English has spoken in, for example, the West Indies. And mm. that's a, a relatively new thing. And regional accents, of course, are, so are much more the thing. Did the BBC coach people in how to speak then? Is that what is that the received part? Well, yes, but the interesting thing is it wasn't... So here's the... There was a pronunciation unit at the BBC. When there I still first, is. Well, it's not what it was. But when I first started in the BBC, there was a pronunciation unit to whom you apply... I mean, now it's everything's online, but to whom you apply... And at the World Cup's interesting. Whenever there was a World Cup or a big international tournament, they would produce a document with pronunciations of all the names in there. Mm. And the bloke who ran it, who ran it, who was an extraordinary person, really was the national expert on patterns of speech and pronunciation. Now, what are you doing there? Are you pursuing clarity? Are you pursuing a standard, which means everyone can be on the same page? Or are you, as its critics would say, creating a sort of artificial standard, one that implies that people with home county, independent school, Oxbridge accents are the people to whom you should defer because they're authoritative? For example, when Angela Giorgiou started her career, people would come around and tell us how to say it. I remember there was the Henry Purcell anniversary and there was an argument over how to say Purcell rather than Purcell or whatever. When my father died 30 years ago, I received a letter from the BBC pronunciation department about how to pronounce my family's home name, which is A-L-T-H-O-R-P. And is it Althorp or is it Althorp? And to be honest, it's one of those words which... If you have two established pronunciations, neither is wrong. But my grandfather called it Old Trip. My father called it Old Thorpe. And the head of the BBC pronunciation department wrote to me and said, I hope you won't continue with that nonsense your father said, and I hope we'll revert to Old Trip. And I had to say, well, like, people around here call it Old Thorpe, so can't we have both? And he didn't want both. Do you? Find, I noticed when you're do, I'm thinking of the Literary Festival, you talk about yes. when you were doing that, you always spoke about the Old Thorpe Literary Festival. Yeah, but it's I just think easier. to your family, you say Old Trip. Yeah, all my family call it Old Trip. 
And also, if you look at the old engravings, it's before standardised, we're talking about standardised pronunciation, before standardised spelling. I mean, I've seen the house A-L-T-R-U-P or, you know, it's been spelled in a million different ways and it was a trap. I'm going to the, the Viking expert here, yeah. but I think it was a thrap, wasn't Thorp. it? Thorpe, actually. So it's related to that we got the Thorpe, which is mm. meets outlying farm or outlying settlement. Mm. But that's obviously going back more than um, a thousand years. Yes. <laughs> is there any way, as a historian, Charles, is there any way of knowing who was the last of your ancestors to speak with a Midlands, East Midlands accent? No, I wouldn't Can you tell know. from the written record what house people... Gosh, that's a good point. But you mean you wouldn't write... But I was thinking if you forms. were rhyming. So if you've written a rhyme, then you might be able to tell from that how a word was pronounced, right? Well, you, can, you can get dialects and things, can't you, from written language. But in the sort of context that you might... It'd yeah. have to be very personal writing, wouldn't it? Going back to the earliest BBC recordings, the accents then are very varied, aren't they? Have you heard those very old ones of 19th century figures, etc.? The people from privileged, very educated backgrounds had very idiosyncratic voices. Yeah. So it was all ironed out. They became a trading post between the failed and failing aristocracy and the middle class who were rising. So the aristocracy had run out of cash and they were trading the way to speak, behave, etc. in this place where they could intermarry you know, the brothers and sisters of the people in these private schools would become interconnected. So the, the sons of those enriched by commerce and industry would acquire the manners and the polish yes. of the upper classes. That upper was the trade. get some cash. That's what those boarding schools were mainly about. Very interesting. And the officer class. And it, it sounds very anti but I can remember when I was at Theological College, I was at Theological College in Yorkshire, and it was originally founded by the monks of the Community of the Resurrection to train young northern men for ordination in the Church of England because young northern men would not have got into Oxbridge, and you could only get ordained via Oxbridge, really, in those days. And so that was the foundation of the college and lots of people who became very significant in the Church of England, not just in the north and province, but throughout it, trained there. But we were still having a lady who came from Leeds to give pronunciation lessons. So I remember being quite surprised because it sounded like northern lads were being required to iron out the distinctiveness of a Liverpool accent or a Manchester accent or a Bradford accent to sound more like me. But if you think about this as well, I mean, when, when you read the obituaries of the older actors, the backgrounds they came from have absolutely nothing to do with their later voices. So Leslie Phillips, yeah. who died last year, he was from a very blue-collar, working-class background. But if we think of him, it's all very upper-class sort of... Uh, arrogant swagger. You get that with clergy too. I mean, clergy did provide people from not particularly grand backgrounds access to the grand world, if you see what I mean. And some, it's still the case now, would acquire the manners and the speech of the people, the circles they aspired to live in and, and be part of, which is an interesting thing. And I remember questioning why we were having elocution lessons, as it were, to iron out um, northern accents. And it was seen as a, something that served not just clarity, but authority. That in order to be sound authoritative in a pulpit or at the lectern, you needed to sound like you were from the home counties. Don't you think it's amazing in a country so tiny that we have so many regional accents still? It's astonishing, really. Well, in Northamptonshire, you and I would be able yes. to distinguish Northampton from Kettering from Absolutely. Rushton, wouldn't we? Yeah. So it didn't have the effect of actually getting rid of 
any of these dialects then i suppose is well i think it was the people who ran things yeah so it's just one social group it's not actually and you notice it very much when i was in lincolnshire my first parish there was a sort of again an officer class of people who ran the town hall the library who were the teachers who were the clergy some of them were yellow bellies lincolnshire people but they'd all gone to some sort of finishing school Mm. whether it was university or theological college and there had acquired the speech pattern and the habits and the presentation of officer class people Mm. maybe that's just something that's very deeply written into english civic life i'm not sure if it's the same in in scotland and of course now it would be i think shocking to think Mm. that somebody would be marked down for sounding like they're from liverpool or manchester i love all the announcers on BBC Radio having clear accents, you know, it's great, isn't it? It makes it much more inclusive in a way. It's it's not exclusive. My Scottish friends, many Scottish friends, laugh at me for the flattening effect of the way I pronounce English. Mm. So to make no... One of my friends makes me say, the Shah of Iran in a power shower. Because she says it just sounds like... Rah, 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 rah. Well, that would be the Shah of Iran in a power shower or something. Yes. So they... There's more music, mm. yes. I think, in the way English is pronounced by people from Scotland, for example, parts of Scotland, Glasgow, the west of Scotland, wherever it might be. And I think it's maybe something to do with standardisation. This mm. yeah. RP, Standard English, does iron out difference in a way. So we get that rather flat, rather monotone. So I started learning English when I was about 10. In school? Yeah, at school. Although, obviously, by that point, by the time you learn it formally... Uh, you've heard so much of it on TV. And so, so in Scandinavian countries, we don't dub TV. So you subtitle everything. So you, you've heard it from your tiny and you heard music. And I mean, I remember I used to write out lyrics from CDs and copy them and, and actually translate word by word because I wanted to understand what the music was about. So I think in so many parts of the world, you've heard English. But at what age did you start understanding English? Oh, I was aware. I understood a few words and things, but it was only when I was about nine or ten that I started actually being able to speak it and learn it. A, you don't have an accent. That's the extraordinary thing. You know, there's no Scandinavian accent in her English. Just wait until I'm really tired. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great joys, I think, of loving football is the number of Scandinavian players and coaches who have learnt their English in Manchester. Yeah. And so they have, I think it's like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, for example, who has, English is flawless, but he has obviously a Norwegian accent, but he also has a Mancunian Norwegian yeah. accent. And it's fascinating that there are still places, for example, where standard English would not serve, and sport would be one of them, I guess. But also you hear so many overseas people coming to England who clearly have learnt their English in America. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's... we. So we didn't really learn British English. It was more Americans. I mean, our teachers spoke a sort of very generic mm-hmm. half and half. And actually, you hear so much more American English, I think internationally, really, than British English. And people get a bit confused. But what is standard English now? Yeah, well... It's a good question, isn't it? I'm not sure yeah. if we even want a standard English, do we? Maybe let a thousand flowers bloom and have... Bit of lovely Catherine Middow. Hey, all right, me old booty. Hey, all right there, child. Hey, been down the Thampton Middow. <laughs> My duck. So do you have a favourite fact this week for us? Well, I do. I mean, it's wonderfully counterintuitive and also very, very particular. It is that there was a particular, very famous voice that bucked the trend of BBC English in the 1940s, and that was Wilfred Pickles, who was a Yorkshireman and whose unmediated Yorkshire accent was very much a feature of the BBC broadcast of the 1940s, which sounds a complete surprise, but absolutely against this Rethian idea of standard English. But do you know why? Because they broadcast to occupied countries. 
and to places under Nazi influence where they needed to be contactable. And it wasn't Lord Haw Haw. The Nazi propaganda machine could muster some RP accents in order to, I don't know, mislead or yes. do their propaganda, but they couldn't do Yorkshire. So if you heard Wilfred Pickles, you knew <laughs> it was clever. authentically it was real. BBC. That's wonderful. That's funny. I like that. That's a good fact. And how wonderful to have a name of Wilfred Pickles. And to be from York, or you could only be from Yorkshire, we call Wilfred Pickles. Couldn't you say, good night. <laughs> so let's see then we've all done our part well yeah, some of us worked particularly hard on this episode just throw that in just me. yeah i mean that was a good fight i will say but obviously this is completely undemocratic yeah. so let's just see what our disembodied voice has decided comes down to between cat and chart no rich <laughs> much as it pains me to say it richard you're on the scoreboard congratulations uh, yeah. no, i feel the start of a streak now here we go well done congratulations thank you well played so we have to reveal next week's subjects Charles, you're going to be talking about the Grand Tour. Oh, fun. And I think we've decided, Richard, that you're going to have to explain this one, I think, to me certainly. The world of livery companies. Yes. The livery companies are the original medieval trade guilds of the City of London that have kind of morphed over the years into some very powerful and sometimes very wealthy bodies that still uh, have a huge influence in the City of London and the commercial life of the capital. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that. Does he need to do it now? He sort of encapsulates <laughs> That's the whole kind of thing. That's going to Yeah. We can just skip over and we can have more time next time. Are you a liveryman? No, I'm not. No. Are you a liveryman? Didn't even know what it was, wow. Richard. So, no. <laughs> so, I thought I'd go for like a really uh, straightforward, simple topic next week, which is eggs. Eggs. Very good. Eggs. So thank you everyone out there for listening to the podcast. Do please leave us a review because it will help other people find us and let us know if you have any particular rabbit holes that you would really like us to fall down, then we'd be happy to take your lead. And in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, imagination is the only weapon in the war with reality. Oh, that's good. That's Goodbye very good. for this week. Alice in Wonderland. I do yeah, like that. these quotes are good, aren't they? Yeah. Do you know that the, the door that led us to go, that's in... The garden of the Dean of Christ Church, Oxford. Do you know that? And that lots of the and the tree that the Cheshire cat sat in is still in the garden of the Dean of Christ Church, Oxford. That's amazing. That's it. Note for you there, folks. Mm. So goodbye for this week. Goodbye. Bye.